and welcome to the Dictator's Podcast. I'm Raphael Kennedy. Thanks for listening. This is our first full-length episode, and we'll be setting the stage for the rise of Augusto Pinochet Ugarte. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a couple of things. Firstly, I've heard the name of this figure pronounced both Pinochet in the French fashion and Pinochet in the Spanish way. Now, it may be more correct to say Pinochet, but I think it's more common, at least in the United States, to pronounce it Pinochet. So that's how I'm going to do it here. I chose to cover Pinochet for the first dictator for a couple of reasons. Pinochet is an interesting figure. He was unambiguously authoritarian, being quoted as saying shortly after the coup, not a leaf moves in this country if I'm not the one moving it. He committed a series of horrific atrocities, killing thousands, torturing tens of thousands, and forcing many more into exile. He embezzled huge amounts of money from the Chilean coffers, diverting it into many offshore bank accounts under a series of assumed names. Still, there are those both in Chile and around the world who view Pinochet as a figure to be admired. Despite his crimes, some people view him as the man who saved Chile from communism. Others laud the Chilean miracle of economic growth that took place during his reign in the 1980s. In this way, he is a complicated and controversial figure. I also wanted to cover Pinochet because his story exemplifies a few themes that we're going to see again and again throughout our coverage of these dictatorships. We'll see in Pinochet's reign the push and pull of freedom and economic success. We'll see the active role played by the United States in both supporting Pinochet and ultimately in removing him from power. And we'll get a chance to see how a world divided by communism and anti-communism during the Cold War created the conditions for authoritarianism. I assure you, we'll be seeing these factors again. So on with the show. I wanted to start with an introduction to Pinochet's predecessor, Salvador Allende. Allende was a fascinating figure. He was born in 1908. He was a doctor, a socialist, a politician in Chile for more than 40 years. Now, interestingly, his first cousin was the father of author Isabel Allende, whose novel The House of Spirits is one of our recommended readings. I guess that makes her his first cousin once removed. Those relationships are always confusing to me. As a young man, Allende first became interested in politics by talking to an Italian cobbler named Juan de Marchi. He said, and I apologize, this is my translation, When I was young, around 14 to 15, I used to go to the workshop of an artisan, an anarchist shoemaker named Juan de Marchi, to listen to his conversations and exchange impressions with him. That occurred in Valparaiso, in the period when I studied at the Liceo. When I finished my classes, I would go to talk with the anarchist, who very much influenced my young life. He was 63 years old, and he was willing to talk to me. He showed me how to play chess. He talked to me about life. He lent me books. Now, DeMarchi is a fascinating figure in his own right, who had come to Latin America from Italy in his 20s. He was involved in the Latin American anarchist movement. Allende credits DeMarchi with opening his eyes to politics, and other writers have talked at great length about the importance that this Italian shoemaker had on Allende, in showing him that there was an important and a vital intellectualism and political consciousness among the lower classes in Chile. Allende went on to become a doctor, and another figure enters his life who becomes important to his development. That figure was the German pathologist, and forgive me for this pronunciation, Max Westenhofer. Westenhofer was a prominent pathologist and a public health expert who was brought to the University of Chile to help modernize the study of pathology. 
He was particularly focused on the social determinants of disease and how development and social factors could lead to disease. Now this was an area that interested Allende, and it would shape his understanding of the interrelation between development and health that he would pursue later as the Minister of Health, and in fact throughout his political career. Westenhofer seems to be a part of Allende's belief that health and politics were inextricably linked, and a factor that would further bend Allende toward a political life, and would see Allende as an important figure as an epidemiologist, helping to establish the field of Latin American social medicine. And as a side note, there's a really interesting article from the International Journal of Epidemiology on this part of Allende's legacy, and it's linked in the show notes. It's interesting that Allende and Westenhofer probably didn't see eye to eye on everything. Westenhofer published a controversial report during his first tenure in Chile, um, and this was before he taught Allende, about the state of hygiene in Chile. In the conservative backlash that ensued, he was deported from the country. But when he returned to Germany, he sat as the deputy chairman of the eugenicist German Society for Racial Hygiene. Anyway, in 1933, Allende co-founded the Socialist Party of Chile, or PS for Partido Socialista. This party was described as center-left, though it was overtly Marxist. Chile had suffered under the Great Depression in 1930, and the profound poverty that much of Chile suffered under invigorated communists and socialists within Chile whose calls for redistribution of wealth appealed to the Chilean poor and the middle class in crisis. In fact, according to the League of Nations, Chile was the nation hardest hit by the Great Depression, because it came at a time when one of their two main exports, nitrates, was declining in popularity internationally. In 1932, there had in fact been a coup d'etat, where the government was replaced by a short-lived Socialist Republic of Chile, but this provisional government crumbled internally and had limited support from the public on either the right or the left, and with the left opposing it because it was militarist and the right opposing it because it was communist, it collapsed within less than a year. Allende's new party was formed in part with Marmaduke Grove, who had served as the Minister of Defense under the Socialist Republic of Chile. This party was meant to unite the socialist parties in Chile, and as such it was a bit of a grab bag of different factions, personalities, and demands. Though their charter was explicitly Marxist, the party was to the right of the Communist Party in that they wanted to pursue a democratic path towards socialism. That's not to say that the political alignment of the party was fixed. Throughout the 40 years between its founding and the 1973 coup that would bring Pinochet into power, there were a series of splits, mergers, fracturings, disputes, and generalized infighting that would lead many of the leaders of, to leave the party and some of them to return. In 1938, Allende became Minister of Health under Pedro Aguirre Cerda, and was able to enact a series of social reforms, including factory safety laws, free lunch programs for school children, that sort of thing. In the 50s, as a senator, Allende introduced a bill that would establish the Fondo Nacional de Salud, essentially a national health service that provided universal health care to Chileans. And it was the first of its kind in Latin America, and actually kind of a pretty impressive achievement. So, since this isn't really a podcast about Salvador Allende, I'm going to fast forward a bit here, but suffice to say that Allende isn't elected president, but his party and the kind of democratic socialism that his party stood for was a powerful force in Chile during the period that's usually referred to as the presidential republic, and he himself remained a powerful figure in politics and an important force behind the social reforms aimed at ameliorating poverty and improving the lives of the Chilean middle class. He was also an intellectual heavyweight in Chilean socialism. 
Also during this period, Chile was uniquely stable in Latin America. By the time we get to the 1973 coup that brings Pinochet into office, Chile will have had 150 years of mostly stable elected democratic government. Chile will have experienced less than 13 months of military rule in the preceding century and a half, and it will have the most robust, fully developed, and well-respected democratic institutions on the continent. One text, the superb A Nation of Enemies, which is linked in the show notes, and in fact I strongly recommend if you're interested in reading more about Chile under Pinochet, makes the case that this history of stability and democracy was central to the Chilean national identity, that people went to the polls in their Sunday best, and they viewed their democratic tradition as one of the things that set them apart from their neighbors of Latin America. Now, in 1964, we have another fascinating and important presidential election. On the right, a conservative coalition called the Democratic Front. On the left, we have a centrist coalition called the Frente de Acción Popular, or FRAP, whose candidate is Allende. And in the middle is a relatively young party called the Partido Demócrata Cristiano, or Christian Democrat Party. That party is headed by Eduardo Frei Montalva. The signs were that this was going to be a close election, and popular opinion seemed to be swinging in favor of the liberals, including the FRAP. The United States feared a socialist victory and supported the Christian Democrats, both through a huge amount of funding and a series of covert actions amounting, it seems, mostly to the distribution of anti-socialist propaganda aimed at reigniting the Red Scare and tying the Allende-led FRAP to the Soviets. Now, if I can interject here, it's difficult to know how important a role this intervention played. Declassified CIA documents suggest that roughly half the costs of the Christian Democrat campaign were paid for by the U.S. government. It's also important to note that there was also a Soviet effort to support communist parties in Latin America, and certainly they would play a role in helping prop up the Allende regime once it came to power. So, at least to me, it isn't clear how one-sided the foreign intervention in this election was, It's clear that the Cold War superpowers, especially the United States, were actively picking sides in this election. It's also clear from declassified CIA documents that the CIA considered their intervention in the election to have been decisive. In other words, that Allende would have won had they done nothing. But that could certainly have been a self-serving analysis. With the specter of an Allende victory looming, the conservatives threw their support to Frey. Eduardo Frei Montalva won the election in the end with about 56% of the vote, and Allende carried about 39%, with the remaining 5% going to the far-right Julio Duran. Now, I don't actually have a good source on this, but Wikipedia asserts that this election had the highest voter turnout in Chilean history. If anyone can either confirm or refute that claim, I'd love to hear it. Frei Montalva came into power with an absolute majority, and it's worth noting here the importance of that fact. If any candidate received more than 50% of the vote in Chile, they were elected president. However, if no candidate crossed that threshold, as was fairly common in Chilean history due to the prevalence of third parties, the decision was thrown to the National Congress, which would decide between the two candidates with the highest vote totals. It's also worth noting that while Frei Montalva was the, to the right of Allende, he wasn't a right-wing candidate. He was a reformer with pretty believable credentials and surprisingly progressive rhetoric. His campaign slogan was Revolución en Libertad, which translates to Revolution in Liberty, and he had been the Minister of Public Works under a previous administration, and had been supported by a left-wing coalition. His reforms were pretty wide-ranging. He instituted a groundbreaking pharmaceutical policy that tried to establish a kind of basket of necessary medicines and regulate their prices. 
He expanded access to health care, training huge numbers of community health workers, and creating clinics in rural areas that were previously too far away from hospitals for the rural population to access acceptable medical care. He introduced a wealth tax and reassessed property taxes to make them more progressive, meaning that relatively higher taxes were placed on wealthier taxpayers. He also pursued a series of policies to help redistribute wealth to rural areas, where wages were reportedly rising by about 40% in real terms in the six years of his presidency. He dramatically increased funding for education and increased the total enrollment in schools by about 46%. He increased the number of years of basic education from six years to eight years and brought huge improvements in access to primary schools. Also, and this may be interesting only to me, but the ways he was able to accomplish this rapid growth in students was by splitting the school day into two shifts. One set of students and teachers would have a full school day in the morning and a totally different set would have a school day in the afternoon. So basically each school building was operating around the clock as two completely different schools. Montalva also passed a law mandating that employees be provided insurance against accidents and occupational diseases, and that was building on initiatives that had been begun by Allende. He also ramped up a program of nationalizing foreign-owned copper mines. I realize that I may have dropped the ball a bit here, but something that's really important about Chile at this time is that its exports are pretty dependent on copper, and the three biggest copper mines are all foreign-owned. Frey Montalva's copper nationalization was an expensive and calculated process by which the government bought 51% of the controlling stake in these mines, so that it could have a much greater degree of control over its export economy without doing too much to upset foreign investors, which of course is not to say that it didn't upset foreign investors at all. He pursued a series of agricultural reforms, raising minimum wages for farm workers, and then critically began expropriating land. Now, the mechanics of how exactly this expropriation works are complicated. From what I can gather, it amounted to breaking up very large estates. Land that was held in estates bigger than 80 hectares of the most fertile land in the country in the Maipo Valley, or of its equivalent in less fertile areas, was subject to expropriation. There were also provisions for land that wasn't being utilized and land owned by corporations. Anyway, land that was expropriated in this way was put into what were called syndicates that were essentially a joint ownership vessel where the land was owned both by the state and by the laborers who lived on and worked the land. Now, these reforms, especially the agrarian reforms, really upset a lot of the conservatives. Uh, And these were people who had ultimately supported Frey in the 1964 election because he was seen as the lesser of two evils. Now, during Frey's tenure as president, about 3.5 million hectares, about 8.6 million acres, was expropriated and formed into syndicates owned by about 100,000 agricultural workers. All of this is to say that Frey was a reformer, with both pretty compelling bona fides and a remarkably strong record of achieving many of the kinds of social reforms that Allende himself supported. Despite this, Frey didn't like or trust Allende. And after the election of 1970, CIA strategies seem very much to be centered around Frey as their man. And that brings us up to the final presidential election before the 1973 coup. Frey Montalva was not eligible. The Chilean constitution doesn't allow presidents to serve consecutive terms. 
Also, the United States had undergone a change of leadership. While the United States under President Johnson had intervened massively in the 1964 elections, Richard Nixon had been elected in 1968 and had been in office since 1969. Richard Nixon will be a key figure not only in this episode arc, but also when we discuss several other Latin American dictatorships, so we'll have lots of time to talk about him. By 1970, the Right Center Coalition that had united behind Frey in order to block Allende in the 1964 elections no longer existed. Agrarian reforms had upset the conservative elements so thoroughly that they were unwilling to back the Christian Democrat candidate, even if it meant risking an Allende victory. So the 1970 election was a very narrowly run three-party race between Allende, now representing a leftist alliance called the Unidad Popular, or Popular Unity, Radomir Tomic, representing the Christian Democrats, and on the right, Jorge Alessandri. Now, Alessandri had been Frey's predecessor as president, and his appeal was seen as a return to a time before Eduardo Frey's wide-ranging reforms. Now, again, the United States intervened in the election, but under Nixon, this took the form of a concentrated anti-Allende scare campaign of posters, leaflets, planted editorials, and other media efforts. They directed covert initiatives to try and separate the Radical Party from the Popular Unity Coalition, but unlike in 1964, they didn't directly fund either of the opposition candidates. Their total spending was a fraction of what it had been in 1964. There was also significant support from the Soviets for Allende. According to one source, the U.S. spent about $425,000 against Allende, while the Soviets spent about $400,000 to support him. Of course, this less extensive intervention before the 1970 elections should not be construed as the Nixon administration adopting a laissez-faire attitude toward Latin America. In the end, Allende was able to eke out quite a narrow plurality, with about 36.6% of the vote. Next closest was Alessandri, with about 35%, followed by Tomic, with about 28%. Now, as I mentioned before, when there wasn't one candidate with a majority of the vote, the decision went to Congress to decide between the top two finishers. And this is when the United States' involvement in the election seems to kick into high gear. CIA accounts talk about two tracks preventing Allende from coming to power. Track 1 was a convoluted, but legal, and ostensibly constitutional approach. Edward Corey, the U.S. ambassador to Chile, appropriately labeled it the Rube Goldberg Gambit, and it was aimed at returning Eduardo Frey Montalva to power. The scheme was this. Frey and his allies would pressure Congress to select Jorge Alessandri as the winner of the election. Alessandri would accept the presidency, and then shortly thereafter, he would resign. His brief presidency would allow Frey to run in the new elections triggered by a presidential resignation. Frey, the United States seemed to think, still had enough support from his constituency and from the center that he could be elected. Now, it's worth noting that while Congress did technically have the authority to do this, it was quite rare for them not to just declare the candidate with the plurality the winner. It's also worth noting that while the Christian Democrats didn't like Allende's Marxism, they were much, much more closely aligned with his ideology than with Jorge Alessandri's conservatism. So this was already a bit of a long shot, and maybe it would have been a different story if Tomic had come in in second place instead of Alessandri. It seems clear that Alessandri was open to the idea. 
though of course it isn't clear if once he was elected he actually would have stepped down. Frey also seems to have supported the idea, but ultimately it didn't pan out for two reasons. The first was that for this gambit to work, the Christian Democrats would need to be united against Allende. They couldn't be significantly divided, as Allende only needed 19 additional votes to get confirmed. The Christian Democrats' concern about Allende was fundamentally not about the reforms he wanted to implement, because, as we've seen, they were actually pretty similar to those of Eduardo Frey. Their concern was that he would suspend the Constitution and impose a Soviet-style dictatorship, a fear that was stoked by U.S. propaganda. Now, to that end, they requested a signed document of constitutional guarantees from the Unidad Popular, his party. Although the UP, which is what I'm going to call it from now on, initially rejected this request, Allende himself reversed that decision and signed a guarantee that he would continue to respect democracy and the Constitution. Now, this document seems to have assuaged most of the fears of the Christian Democrats, and the CIA seems to have been convinced by October that he would be confirmed. Even so, any remaining doubt was eliminated after the kidnapping and murder of Chief Commander of the Army, General René Schneider. This episode of Chilean history remains a bit blurry. Essentially, as soon as the Rube Goldberg gambit seemed doomed to failure, Nixon authorized the U.S. Ambassador Edward Corey to begin laying the groundwork for a coup. One such piece of groundwork was eliminating Schneider, who was popular and was known as a staunch constitutionalist who vocally opposed the idea of a military coup. A group, led by an unstable retired officer, received money, guns, tear gas, and the promise of future support from the CIA. Now, in a 2001 lawsuit, Kissinger claims that he did initially approve the kidnapping attempt, but later he tried to abort the mission. But the CIA maintains that it received no such request. In any case, what was initially supposed to be a kidnapping was bungled almost immediately. Schneider drew a handgun to defend himself, and he was shot four times by his attackers. He died three days later in a Chilean hospital. The plotters were arrested and later convicted. The grisly murder, and its obvious links to an attempted coup, galvanized public support for the government in general, and for Allende in particular, just days before the confirmation vote. In the end, Allende was confirmed, and the Nixon administration appears to be resigned to him taking power, with all such gambits doomed to failure. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to this inaugural episode of The Dictator's Podcast. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes and tell your friends. I don't have any intention of actually advertising this show, so the more people you can spread the word to, the better. Thanks for your help, and join us next time as we dive into the Allende regime and the coup of 1973.